Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Daniel Magaziner, an assistant professor of history at Yale University. Professor Magaziner is an intellectual historian specializing in 20th century South Africa. In 2010, he published his first book, The Law and the Prophets, Black Consciousness in South Africa, a history of political thought in 1970s South Africa. Today we talk with Professor Magaziner about his new research project, tentatively titled On a Contested Canvas, Artists and the Art of Life in 20th Century South Africa. Well, welcome, Professor Magaziner. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with an overview of your book. Tell us about it. Well, I should first say that this book is as yet unwritten. So okay. it is a potential book. And potentially what I, what I hope that it will be is an intellectual history of black visual artists in South Africa from the 1920s until the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And looking primarily at painters and sculptors, and especially at people who consider themselves modern artists, um, which was a category that didn't really exist in South Africa, for, especially for Africans. Mm -hmm. There was a small white modern art scene, but not a very large African art, modern art scene. Okay. And so what I'm looking at are the intellectual experiences of those artists, their social experiences, their training, their education, and so on, um, during a period that stretches from the advent of segregation in South Africa in the early part of the 20th century until the 1980s when the apartheid system that was a successor to that uh, the system of white minority rule in South Africa was beginning to be taken apart. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how did the book come to be written, or how did you get the idea to write the book? Um, the book in many ways grows out of my first projects. Mm -hmm. My first project was about um, activists, and student activists especially, and church activists in the mm -hmm. 1970s, who developed a notion from the late 1960s into the early 1970s that the only appropriate response to um, apartheid was to be political across every facet of your being. Mm -hmm. You needed to think about politics always. You needed to be politically engaged always. And one of the results of that in the 1970s was the emergence of a very politically engaged art form. Um, you saw people beginning to paint explicitly political themes. You mm -hmm. saw people be able to write poetry that wasn't about love or anything like that, but instead was about oppression about the experience of living in South Africa's townships, mm -hmm. about dispossession and land alienation. Um, you saw music that was explicitly political in its form and content. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I realized was that was all very fine and good, but what I had traced was a historical phenomenon by which activists became convinced that this was the only appropriate form of art that was out there. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at the literature on 20th century South African art, what I saw was that scholars had tended to always read it as if it was by nature and by definition political. Okay. They had in a sense allowed the reality of art as it, was, as it came to exist in the 1970s and 1980s, they allowed that reality to influence how they explored the potential for art and during previous decades. Mm -hmm. um, this was not a coincidence because much of the scholarship on South African art was written in the 1980s at a time when the art was avowedly political. So when scholars went to look at arts, they always focused on the political aspects of mm -hmm. that art. And so what I began to be interested in was if it had been created, this notion of a political art had been created during the 1960s and 1970s, what other forms of art existed? What other forms of engagement existed? Mm -hmm. And so I began to, I set out to research that, and, and, and ultimately uh, that is what I've turned into this book project. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is dance a part of it as well, visual? You know, um, 
dance is not a okay. part of it. Uh, I, I wish that it were. Mm -hmm. um, in part, I, I'm not very well versed in the literature on dance. I see. Um, and there's th that which does exist tends along these same paradigms. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that there would be a potential for a project, mm -hmm. um, but it's not something that's been studied right, very much okay. so far. Let's talk about how you did the research for the book. Um, what was your methodology? Um, well, the thing about South Africa that makes it somewhat unique among African countries is that because of the infrastructure that went along with uh, white, white supremacy, South Africa was in many senses a fully developed country mm -hmm. with a large underclass of people who had no access to that. Um, in terms of art, what that meant was that South Africa had museums, it had art galleries, it had art critics, it had all of these things stretching back to the 1920s and the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And because of that, as a result of that, along the way, there were a certain number of artists who emerge, who get picked up by the media, and who become relatively well-known in their time and after the fact. Mm -hmm. And at first, this is very few. Um, then it becomes more and more. And so what I was trying to do initially, my initial approach, was to try to figure out what sort of documentary record was left by these artists. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of an important uh, innovation there because much of the work that's done on artists tends to be focused on their works. Right. Um, I'm very interested in their works. Their works are quite striking in many, in many cases. But what I'm mostly interested in is are their experiences up to that moment when they began to paint or began to sculpt. Mm -hmm. How it was that they were reflecting what had happened previously in the work that emerges. So I needed to find some other sources. Mm -hmm. um, paintings tend to, you make an initial stroke and then you paint in one on top of it. And so paintings present a completed picture and I wanted to kind of disaggregate it and take it apart. So I went into museums, I went into art galleries, I went to the collections of private collectors, and I tried to find any documentary evidence that they have. And it was, it was not the easiest task mm -hmm. because there's um, not very much of it. Right. Uh, there was very little coverage in white newspapers of black artists. Um, most newspapers tended to focus on white artists. Mm -hmm. They were for a white audience. And it was only in, in the 1960s, really, that black newspapers and black media began to pick up and cover black mm -hmm. artists. Um, so I spent a lot of time just trying to piece together a documentary record mm -hmm. based on that. Were you looking for what their day-to-day -day lives were like up to the point they started to produce art? Day-to-day -day lives, um, to an extent. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it is that we do have a pretty extensive historiography on social experience in 20th century South Africa. So I can make general claims about their day-to-day -day existence. Mm -hmm. um, what we don't have as good a record on is how people responded to it, how people thought about it, and how they reflected on it. So what I was looking at was especially indications of their critical approach mm -hmm. to their lives, how they understood what was happening. So I was trying to find comments in newspapers, say, that didn't make much sense, given what I know about social experience in 20th century South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and I found a number of things that were surprising in that way and that allowed me to kind of begin to make claims about the individual social, the individual intellectual experience mm -hmm. of these people, um, which was what I w was trying to get at initially. Were you able to speak to any living people? Okay. Um, I did. I did. My, my, as a 20th century historian, I'm fortunate um, because I do, I am able to do interviews. Mm -hmm. um, many of the people I'm most interested in lived very long lives, um, but died before I became interested in the subject, okay. unfortunately. Um, the period that I began to focus in most intently was the interwar period, the 1920s to the 1940s. And there was about five major um, self-conscious black modern artists during that time period. 
Many of them lived very long lives, mm -hmm. um, but they died in the 1990s, which okay. meant that I didn't ever have a chance to interview them. I've done interviews um, with people who came in later generations, mm -hmm. artists especially in the 1960s and 1970s, and I'm currently working with researchers at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa to basically try and find more people to interview. And we were placing ads in newspapers and trying to mm -hmm. expand our, our vision of who we could talk to for the project. Okay. So how does your work differ um, at this point from the other um, books and literature that are out there now? Um, it differs in two ways, I think, uh, depending on which literature we, we decide that we want to address. Um, in terms of 20th century South African historiography, the literature written by historians about this time period that I'm covering, um, there's absolutely, or I should not say absolutely, that was a little bit overstated, mm -hmm. there is very little coverage of anything other than politics. Mm -hmm. And when I say politics, I mean politics kind of writ large. I don't mean just political party maneuvering, the rise of resistance movements, but I mean those things that we associate as being inherently political, mm -hmm. the economy, land alienation, forced removals of people, violence, these sorts of things that are the common stories we get in 20th century South Africa. There's very little about, or a good way I could explain it is this. Um, artists traveled for training and in search of source material. Okay. And they traveled on trains, they traveled on buses. We don't have any accounts of black experience in 20th century South Africa that talk about travel because you're trying to better yourself. Mm -hmm. What we have instead are more accounts of people traveling because they're forced to, because right. the government has told them they have to leave their homes, hmm. because the government is, because of the, in, the industries that exist that force them into migrant labor and sure. so on. So in terms of 20th century historiography, there's very little on these sorts of people. Um, in terms of art history, which is the other discipline I'm interested in, I already mentioned how I'm less interested in the works themselves, right. although that is part of the project. Um, part of the problem with art history, as I see it, is they tend to think that artists, that genius is this thing that travels from individual artists to individual artists to individual artists. And although there is a lot of material written on, say, these early black modern artists I mentioned a minute ago, what happens is art history tends to elevate those single moments where one artist met another artist and to say, that's what matters mm -hmm. in their subsequent development. For me, I think I have a different approach. I'm trying to place these artists within a wider, um, more a broader intellectual society mm -hmm. where there's lots of people who don't happen to become artists but who are interested in mm -hmm. ideas about creativity, who have ideas about what is the appropriate production of a creative individual mm -hmm. in their time period in South Africa. And so what I try to do is widen that realm in which the arts exist. Mm -hmm. And so I do that by supplementing traditional art history resources with other forms of evidence. Such as what? Well, the biggest, I'll, I'll share a little research mm -hmm. anecdote okay. that might help illustrate okay, sure. what, I, what I'm trying to say here. Um, over the course of the 20th century, by the 1980s, I would say there were no more than 30 to 40 recognizable names in black art. And that gave me a very limited <coughs> source base, as I discovered, in, in the, as I was going through my research, I mm -hmm. discovered that I was limited in terms of what I could say. And so what I tried to do was say, okay, how can we widen the category of artists? What we tend to see is those people who actually make sales, those people who get coverage in the newspaper, those become artists. Mm -hmm. But what I was thinking was that there are other people in society who think of themselves as interested in arts. Right. And so what I tried to do was figure out how to, how to do that. And 
I got very fortunate at one point. I was reading a very short monograph written by one relatively well-known artist, a man named Dan Rahuate. And in it, there was, there was a uh, footnote that suggested that Rahuate had corresponded with someone I'd never heard of, mm -hmm. a woman named Lorna Pearson, and that there existed somewhere at an archive in Durban, there existed a large correspondence file of correspondence between this man and this woman. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard of her, I, but I figured I needed more evidence. So sure. I went, traveled to Durban and I went there. What I discovered, in fact, was that Rahuate was corresponding with his former teacher and that he had been trained by this woman not to be an artist but to be an art teacher oh. in schools reserved for Africans under what was called Bantu education, which mm -hmm. was the, the white minority's attempt to um, control African education beginning in the 1950s. And what I discovered was that that correspondence file was one of actually hundreds of correspondence files that existed between this woman, who was the head art teacher and principal of the mm -hmm. school, and her students, mm -hmm. many of whom never produced any artworks, but all of whom thought of themselves as artists. Mm -hmm. And they pursued that quest to be artists uh, under the Bantu education right. system by trying to become art educators. Mm -hmm. Because it was very hard to make it as an artist, but if you get someone to pay you, then you could try and make sure, your way sure. and have some time to do your own work. You must have been thrilled to have discovered that. It, well, it was a big moment. Yeah. Uh, it was a big moment. It was a, a very short trip. I was, I was with my wife and my, at that point, two-year-old daughter mm -hmm. in Durban. And we had only planned a, a few days. And those days became frenetic yes. days of illicit photocopying and mm -hmm. picture taking. Um, and then going back and asking permission to use all of those pictures and images that I had collected because I wasn't sure if I could get back. And mm -hmm. actually, I was able to go back and have been working through that archive. And that's mm -hmm. become a major part of my project. Let me point. ask you this. Of that small group of artists that mm -hmm. were producing art, did they communicate with each other at all? Was it a, a, a very much a community or not so much? They attempt to. Mm -hmm. um, what I discover is that because they are so isolated, they it becomes even more vital that they can establish connections with other artists. Um, so many of them come out of, of school experiences mm -hmm. and art school, night school experiences in particular. Uh, beginning in the late 1940s, there's this great concern among the Johannesburg city government, Johannesburg being the largest city in South Africa, mm -hmm. that there's this big population of Africans who don't have anything to do at night. And they're very worried because they think if they're not, they don't have anything to do at night, they could get in all sorts of trouble. Right. So one of their solutions is to say, we need to come up with cultural activities at various city-owned mm -hmm. buildings where people can go and they can study piano and study singing and so on. And one of these becomes is, is art. And so beginning in the late 1940s, the government begins a series of night schools for aspirant artists, people who work as clerks or medical assistants or have some sort of petty bourgeois job in the city during the day. And then at night, they go and they study painting mm -hmm. under white artists for a couple of for a few hours um, these people tended to develop interests along the same lines their works tended to take on a very similar form mm -hmm. evidence of their training and, and, and so on and so you see these little schools that emerge mm -hmm. and so one of the pro the aspects of the project is tracing these little communities and how these communities are disseminated mm -hmm. um, under apartheid though the government this was a project that was kind of undertaken right before the apartheid government was developed. And mm -hmm. one of the things that apartheid does is it further erodes Africans' access to city centers. Okay. So over the course of the 1950s and 1960s, these night schools eventually get shut down. They get shut down and all art education gets focused instead on rural areas 
in areas that are reserved for African residents. Okay. So one of the things that you increasingly see is the efforts to maintain a community of artists become more fraught because artists are being trained further and further away from their homes and then they're finding themselves more and more isolated. So I've tried to collect correspondence, tried to collect um, evidence of these connections that these okay. artists are trying to maintain. Okay. Final question. I know the book is not complete yet, but have you been able to come to any conclusions? I have, I'm, I'm playing around with some tentative conclusions. Mm -hmm. um, I have some conclusions in terms of how, if you look at artists, you see the history of 20th century South Africa differently, how the chronology is different, how um, the question of politics changes at mm -hmm. various moments. And those are conclusions I think will be interesting to, uh, to historians and to others. Mm -hmm. The conclusion I'm most excited about, that I'm most, I should also say perhaps worried about, is a reassessment of intellectual life under apartheid. The general consensus had long been that, or in scholarship, that under apartheid no authentic intellectual life was possible. There was either the intellectual life of resisting the movement, which mm -hmm. was of sort, which, which was of course authentic, but was limited, because mm -hmm. then when, the, when apartheid ended, the question of what would happen with that political energy was, was left open. And then there was the idea that apartheid, because it controlled education, because it controlled culture to some extent, um, that it was limiting any authentic African intellectual creativity during this time period. What I've discovered is that that wasn't the case. What I've discovered is that under the system of Bantu education, which was oppressive, mm -hmm. which was intellectually spurious in all sorts of ways, um, there existed elements of creativity and elements of freedom that teachers tried to cultivate. Mm -hmm. And so when looking at art education, I see the ways in which art educators were convinced that they were inculcating these values of individual creativity that were vital to being modern, modern people mm -hmm. in the 20th century. Not Africans, not South Africans, just people. It was part of being human. And that they were reading much wider than apartheid. They were reading John Dewey. They were thinking about all these, these really important ideas. But they were doing so under the aegis of the most perfect system of racial oppression that, had ever, that has mm -hmm. ever existed. And so that's caused me to ask new questions about the potential for understanding apartheid. Mm -hmm. and I mean, that is very curious, ironic. It's, it's, it's deeply ironic. And it's very problematic because when I've mentioned it to people, people say, are you suggesting there's anything good in Bantu education, which is anathema. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting there's anything good, but I'm suggesting that people made of the system things that we haven't yet accounted for. Mm -hmm. And that we need to account for what people made of the system because when, then we can actually offer a more fair assessment. Um, and I think as apartheid recedes into the past, and it's now been 18 years since the end of apartheid, people are beginning to wonder, okay, what, how else can we see the 20th century? Does it have to be just this this analysis of racism, this analysis of state oppression. Can we begin to open new sorts of dialogues? Mm -hmm. And I think that my project hopefully will contribute to, to, mm -hmm. that, to that overall project. Fascinating stuff. We'll look forward to your book. Thank you. Um, for more information about Professor Magaziner and his work, please visit our website at yale.edu slash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.